On a late fall evening just north of downtown Seattle, a medevac helicopter is cruising along the coastline when it disappears into the fog, slams into the water, and sinks over 500 feet to the bottom of the Puget Sound. This was not the first accident by this pilot, and it was also not the first time that this operator had lost a medevac helicopter into the Puget Sound. Full story coming up on this episode of the Dr. Medic. I know that I have said this with many of the stories in the past, but I have got to reiterate the purpose of this channel and the purpose of this story, which is to learn, to be safer, to move the entire paramedicine profession forward by learning from the mistakes of the past. Many of these stories, including this one, are gonna deal with the loss of life as well as the mistakes and circumstances that led to that loss of life. And while this loss of life is always tragic. The lessons learned are invaluable, and if we cannot tell the stories of the past, those losses will just be lost in vain and will undoubtedly be repeated again in the future. Now, the operator at the time of this incident was CJ Systems Aviation Group out of Pennsylvania, with CJ Systems since being acquired by Air Methods back in 2007. The clinical side of this service is run through the University of Washington's Department of Medicine with the official branding listed as Airlift Northwest. Today, Airlift now utilizes air methods as their rotor wing service provider, with AeroAir being the service provider for their fixed wing operations. Now, Airlift has a very high clinical standard as they are a hospital-based service with very progressive protocols, and they actually are one of the very few flight services in the United States that actually does not utilize flight paramedics at all, instead operating for a two-flight nurse configuration, and they provide coverage throughout the state of Washington, Alaska, Oregon, Wyoming, Montana, and Idaho. Now, at the time of this accident, the majority of the helicopter models in their fleet were Augusta 109s, and they have now transitioned almost completely over to Airbus H-135s with a single Augusta 109E still in their fleet. They also primarily utilize Pilatus PC-12s for their fixed-wing operations with a single Learjet 45. The aircraft in this accident is an awesome Italian Augusta 109A2 manufactured in 1984. The 109A2 is an older model and is often just called the 109 Mark II. The 109 is still in production today under the model of AW109 after the merger of Augusta and Westland in 2000, and then subsequently Leonardo SPA in 2016. The A109 Mark II was a lightweight twin-engine helicopter powered by two Rolls-Royce 250 C20B turboshaft engines making 420 horsepower each and is known to have an awesome power reserve if forced to run on a single engine. This particular aircraft did have a Garmin 430 GPS as well as a three-axis autopilot and had full IFR capabilities with just a single pilot and was certified for IFR flights. An important note is that this helicopter did not have terrain awareness warning systems, otherwise known as TAWS. This aircraft has a four-blade main rotor, retractable landing gear, and had a total 
total of 3,794 hours on the airframe with just 54 hours since its last full inspection. There were no issues or discrepancies really with the aircraft other than that the day shift pilot did mention that sometimes the autopilot was a bit slow to respond at times, but that this was considered typical and nothing unusual. Now, on board this helicopter was 48-year-old flight nurse Erin Reed, who had previously worked as a firefighter and paramedic up until she was hired with Airlift in 1997, as well as 47-year-old flight nurse Lois Suzuki, who specialized in pediatric nursing and had been with Airlift since 1998. The pilot was a 58-year-old male named Stephen Smith. He held an airline pilot certificate with both helicopter and instrument airplane ratings, as well as a first-class medical certificate from just six months prior to the crash. He had been flying Airlift Northwest helicopters for many years with the operator that they were using at the time, CJ Systems, as well as their predecessor, which was Hospital Air Transport, and had extensive experience in the Puget Sound area, flying in the area for almost 17 years. Pilot Steven had just had his last IFR proficiency check just four months prior to the accident and had racked up a total of 8,190 hours with 7,990 of them in helicopters and almost 4,200 hours in the Augusta 109, with 2,396 hours at night with almost 700 hours on instruments. Now, about three years prior to the accident of this story, Pilot Steven had a terrible mishap in another A109 with Airlift Northwest. He had found himself in some terrible weather conditions, and Steven was quoted as saying that it was pitch black, snowing, raining, and fog, and he decided to abort a flight and land in an open field. The medical crew continued the transport via ground with local EMS and Stephen actually spent the night at a local fire station. He came back the next morning with the intention of flying the aircraft back to his base. But just after takeoff, he lost both engines within just a few seconds of each other, tipped the nose down during an auto rotation, and had a hard landing. Now, this would not be the first time that I have seen an EMS helicopter completely destroyed after one of what the NTSB calls a hard landing. Either way, the NTSB faulted the pilot for not maintaining rotor RPM during the auto rotation, but also noted that there was a circuit breaker that was tripped for the engine failure in low RPM audible warnings, which means pilot Steven would not have heard any of the warnings when his engines went out. Why was the circuit breaker tripped? We don't know. But buried in the supplemental documentation are some very subtle hints about this previous accident. The engine de-icing function on the 109 works basically by redirecting some of the bleed air from the turbines and redirecting that air around the hollow inlet veins in other areas of the engine to prevent ice buildup. On the 109, at least back in 2005, this was not an automatic process and the pilot had to actually turn on the de-ice toggle switches for both engines to prevent ice buildup. The Augusta manual stated that if the outside air temperature is below 4 degrees Celsius or 40 degrees Fahrenheit and there is moisture in the air, then the anti-icing must be in the on position. Now, when pilot Steven was returning to the helicopter that morning with the local fire department, the fire chief was with Steven and he noted that the temperature was 38 degrees and then walked up to the aircraft and started wiping snow off of the inlets. And then after the helicopter crashed, there was a King County Sheriff deputy that responded almost immediately and in his report he noted that it was 32 degrees Fahrenheit overcast with mixed rain and snow and that among other things noted on scene that both of the engine anti-ice control switches were found in the off position. Now 
Pilot Steven tore an artery near his heart, broke his back, and also fractured every rib on the left side of his body. And after 20 months of recovery and time off of work, he returned to work at Airlift Northwest in September of 2003. Now, back to the 2005 accident. About an hour before this accident took place, the National Weather Service reported that there was a low pressure system moving to the east, north of Seattle, with a cold front extending to the southwest. The accident site occurred directly in front of this cold front and in IFR conditions that were forecast and reported by the National Weather Service. Now, the National Weather Service radar chart at 2118, which was just five minutes after the accident, depicted a large area of moderate intensity rain showers over all of Western Washington state moving east at 51 knots. The closest reporting station was just a few miles away and was reporting winds out of the west at six knots, four miles of visibility with light rain and mist, a temperature of 15 degrees Celsius, and a dew point of 14 degrees Celsius. The date of this accident flight was September 29th, 2005. And at 1911 hours local time, Airlift 4, whose home base was located at Arlington Municipal Airport in Arlington, Washington, received a flight request just a few minutes away at Cascade Valley Hospital to pick up a patient in the ICU who had a large head bleed and then transport them to Harborview Medical Center, which is just on the south side of downtown Seattle. A pilot, Steven, during this flight request, pauses to check the weather and then tells dispatch that, I think we can give it a try. It takes the crew just three minutes to arrive at Cascade Hospital, and they take just under 30 minutes to assess and package their patient, and they then departed Cascade at 1954 hours and had an uneventful 20-minute flight south to Harborview Hospital. The flight nurses then take the patient inside, give the report, transfer care, prep their equipment back to its ready state, and then all three of them take off in visual conditions about 50 minutes later at 2104 and head back home to their base in Arlington. They depart Harborview and head out west a bit over the waters of Elliott Bay and then proceed north along the coastline with the Puget Sound to their west and downtown Seattle to their east. They continue flying along the coastline about 800 feet over the water until they fly over the western part of the city of Edmonds and then out over Browns Bay when the helicopter suddenly turns towards the west away from the shoreline where its last radar point is recorded at 2112. While there were no to this accident. There were many people who heard the helicopter hit the water, with many of them stating that it is a regular occurrence to hear and see the medevac helicopters flying this route. Some described the helicopter as flying low and straight with normal sounding engines, and then all of a sudden they heard a loud whoosh or a bang or a boom or a thud or a thunk, and then nothing but quiet. They also noted that at the time it was too foggy to see the helicopter and that it had also just begun raining pretty heavily. At this point, airlift dispatch is still unaware that the aircraft has gone down. Ten minutes goes by. Then dispatch calls them over the radio with another flight request, but they received no response. It was later shown that the dispatchers were actively discussing that Airlift 4 should be arriving at their Arlington base now and are watching the base camera to see if they are landing. Now they are flight following and their flight following alarm is sounding, but they noted that it may be taking them longer due to the weather. But after several more attempts to reach Airlift 4, the Airlift dispatch finally receives a 911 call at 2127 roughly 15 minutes after last radar contact 
that a helicopter has crashed. The Coast Guard responded almost immediately and began searching the waters of Browns Bay and then finally found the body of one of the flight nurses floating with other debris from the aircraft. It was presumed that the aircraft and the other two bodies had sank in the area and the United States Navy commenced an extensive search and recovery effort eight days later using specialized underwater search and recovery equipment. Finally, after three and a half days of searching, the aircraft and the pilot's body were recovered in nearly 525 feet of water. The body of the second flight nurse was never recovered. Now, not all of the helicopter was recovered, but they were able to locate and recover the number one engine, the main rotor pylon, the tail boom, and the tail rotor. The number two engine was never recovered. Autopsies were completed on both of the bodies that were recovered with the causes of death listed as blunt force injuries. The toxicology reports for both of them all came back negative. And there was nothing found in the maintenance history of the helicopter and of the wreckage that they were able to recover, all of it showed damage consistent with the helicopter helicopter impacting the water in an uncontrolled descent. In other words, the helicopter was flying at a high rate of speed when it impacted the water and just ripped the aircraft apart. But it is important to note that the majority of the flight control system, as well as the instruments and avionics, were not recovered, which made it nearly impossible to determine what caused the helicopter to impact the water in such an uncontrolled manner. And in the end, the NTSB found that the probable cause of this accident to be the loss of control for an undetermined reason during maneuvering flight, which resulted in an in-flight collision with water. Now, it has since been nearly 18 years since this crash took place and no further investigations seem to have taken place. Pilot Steven was extremely experienced and had been flying in this exact area of Seattle for nearly 17 years. He had over 8,000 hours, which means he was extremely experienced in the helicopter EMS world. He had probably made this exact flight hundreds maybe even over a thousand times in his career. The weather reports were clearly indicating a cold front was moving through with decreased visibility and heavy rains, and his final comment of, I think we'll give it a try, should be a code word for, we are not taking this flight. And as if the story wasn't tragic enough, this accident occurred almost exactly 10 years after an eerily similar accident with Airlift Northwest that took place on September 19th, 1995, where an airlift helicopter headed for Bainbridge Island suddenly plunged into the water, killing the pilot and two flight nurses under almost identical circumstances with really no good probable cause being found. And finally, on October 28, 2005, just 30 days after the Airlift 4 crashed in Browns Bay, Airlift had another accident. And in this accident, the pilot, who had been very experienced in the older A109 Mark II model, was now flying a much newer and updated version in the Augusta A109E or 109 Power, which had way more powerful Pratt & Whitney engines as well as a FADEC fuel control system. In this accident, the pilot, two flight nurses, and a patient were on board as they were taking off from a hospital roof pad. Just moments after taking off, the helicopter lost power and fell nearly 65 feet while impacting the sides of buildings and then finally crashing into an open dirt field courtyard. Amazingly, all four of these occupants survived this accident with the cause ultimately being that the pilot put one of the engine's power flight control switches in the wrong position, causing that engine to immediately lose power upon takeoff. In short, the aircraft has two engines and upon takeoff, one was at full power and the other one 
was accidentally left in idle position. This pilot had tons of experience on the older Mark II, but was brand new to the 109 power model with just 15 hours of time. He later stated that he felt that he did not get clear answers from his flight instructors regarding the start sequence of the power model. And it was also documented that the Augusta flight manual and the Augusta general familiarization manual were not consistent in their instructions regarding the engine control switches. But even with these claims from the pilot and the inconsistencies of the training manuals, the pilot was ultimately terminated. If ever there was a case where the Swiss cheese model was in full effect, it certainly is this one. And while it is clear that the pilot made a mistake in this accident, it is also clear that there were some serious inconsistencies in the training and expectations. And in a true just culture, this pilot would most likely have been successful in the future through remediation and improved education instead of being terminated. And in a true just culture, human error needs to be managed through updating processes, improving training, or improving system and equipment design. Punitive actions such as punishment and termination really should be reserved for reckless or repeated at-risk behavior. Why is it that this part of just culture is so important? Because if an organization cannot separate reckless behavior from normal human error, then people will never speak up when they make a mistake. They will never seek out guidance on how to improve. They will never be able to have open discussions about safety. And if people cannot be free to self-report their own mistakes, or even the mistakes of others, the mistakes will all go unnoticed until a catastrophic event, just like these ones, take place. But a shining light with this fourth airlift accident, which had little to no injuries, was a big motivating factor for one of its survivors, Krista Haugen, to get together with several of her colleagues to form what is now known as the Survivors Network for Air and Surface Medical Transport, which exists to be a support network for survivors of these kinds of accidents, as well as providing outreach education and awareness, all in an effort to promote safety and resilience in this industry. Please visit the link for the Survivors Network in the description below and do everything that you can to support them. Feel free to comment below on a story that you'd like to see in the future. If you like this channel and you want to see more stories like this, you can always support me by subscribing to the channel, smashing that super thanks button, or even visiting my website and buying some stupid nerdy merch or something like that. Either way, I appreciate you taking the time to watch this video and comment. Please look out for one another, be nice, and I will see you on the next episode.